Paul, a servant of, of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to, be, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them. 
to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to, the re to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through the Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The, say, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus and, and the, lawyer, the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Well, praise be to God for his word uh, that we have before us this morning. I want to go ahead and let you know that I do not intend to preach through the entirety of Titus today, uh, but we are going to spend the next few weeks looking at Titus together. However, as we walk through this section by section, I wanted to make sure that we could hear this letter in its entirety so we can understand Paul, his heart, his desire, his passion for Titus, his passion for the church, and then uh, more importantly, more about good, sound, faithful teaching and instruction together. So as you can clearly see, we are now starting a new series together where uh, a series that we are calling Letters from the Pastor this is where we are going to be walking over the next several weeks uh, through Titus as well as First and Second Timothy. Now, I personally believe that this is actually an important time in the life of our church as these letters are some of the most uh, concise and clear writings uh, that we have from Paul. Now, many people have argued that uh, the authorship of Paul here, because uh, first and second Timothy and Titus are very unlike any of the other Pauline letters. However, when you read the letters, you quickly realize that letters to the church at Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi, these were all letters written to large bodies of people. These were all letters written to multiple members, whereas when you get into first and second Timothy, you get into Titus, you see individual letters that are being written to individual pastors and leaders that would eventually be shared with the congregation. Uh, but what you do see and get a glimpse of in these particular letters is the relationship and the intimacy shared between Paul and Timothy as well as Titus. Now, although the letters are short, 
we know that these letters clearly contain truths on doctrine and church polity or the way a church should be set up and governed. So what I'm hoping for us over the next several weeks together is that we would be able to look at what Paul, the pastor, is saying to these young churches and saying to these young pastors as to how we are to be or how we are to function as a church. Now, in a time where many churches in our current cultural climate, many churches are beginning to question their mode, they're beginning to question their purpose and even question their their means of operation, I believe this is a good time for us to look back to the scripture and see if we, the American Evangelical Church, align with what the biblical church deemed as good and right. And so what I would encourage you with is as we walk through the next several weeks through Titus, and then as we jump into 1 Timothy and then again in 2 Timothy, I would encourage you to sit down and and make a comparison chart. Compare the American church and what we do. Compare our programs and our ministries and compare our way of life, whether it's here at Southside or historically at another church that you were a part of. Compare those things with the biblical church that we find in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 4, even here in Titus and First and Second Timothy. And then once you've done this comparison chart, ask yourself this question. Are we as a church, even close? Are we even close to getting it right according to God's standard for the church? What are some things that we need to think about as a church or maybe some things that we need to affirm or reaffirm as a church or perhaps are there things in the church as the body of believers, are there things that we may even need to change in order to be a vibrant and healthy church according to the word of God? Well, my prayer for us as we walk through this next study is that as we walk together through Titus first and then first and second Timothy, my prayer is that we would see more of not only what the individual believer, but also what the healthy church is supposed to look like. So for us, for the next several weeks, we are going to start with Titus and then we will go from there. Now, clearly, we already know that this letter written to Titus was clearly written by Paul. Now, we know of Paul that Paul used to be a persecutor of Christians, an enemy of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was in Acts chapter 7 that we actually see Paul, who at the time was called Saul, stood in support of the murder of Stephen, who would be the first Christian martyr. And yet it would be God. God who, in his sovereign plan for Paul on the Damascus Road, finding Paul, continuing his intent on the destruction of Christianity, according to Acts chapter 9, in this particular moment, Jesus Christ appears to Paul from heaven and therefore changes the course of Paul's life. You see, Christ saved Paul for service for the sake of the faith. Now fast forward many years later, and Paul, after his missionary journeys, after mentoring both 
Timothy and Titus doing ministry with those men just before his death. He now sits to write to both of them to encourage them and to encourage the call to persevere in the pastorates that God has called them to. So here we see Paul the pastor. The pastor is now pastoring the pastors. For Titus, we are now about to see in Paul's letter what we are called to do for the sake of the faith. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to look back with me at Titus chapter 1. We are going to begin reading in verse 1 of Titus 1. And if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now this is Paul's letter written to Titus. In Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've already had today to be able to worship you in song, to be able to worship you through the reading of your word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had already to read in its entirety the entire letter written to Titus. And Father, we pray that over the next several weeks as we walk through this letter together, Father, we pray that you and you alone would be glorified. Lord, we ask that as we unpack this letter, Father, may we see more of what it means to be a church that honors you. May the way we gather, the purposes for why we gather, the way we do ministry, Father, may it all be for your glory and your glory alone. Father, we thank you for your grace a grace that we've already sung about this morning. Thank you for the mercy that is found in knowing you as Lord. Father, we thank you for renewed life and renewed hope that we now have in you. And so, Father, we pray that with the days ahead, with our lives, Father, in our actions and words, may you and you alone be glorified. Now, God, we pray that you would be with us in these next few moments as we study your word together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for delighting in us. And God, again, we ask that in these next few moments, may you be glorified. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, before we jump into this, I do want to take a moment and tell you thank you for the birthday greetings and well wishes already. It has been an encouragement to hear from so many of you uh, to say happy birthday. I appreciate that. So many people have already messaged me this morning and and called. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, It is encouraging. I am looking forward to uh, God's grace and what he will do over the next year within my own life, both as pastor and husband and father. Um, 
Um, I got to tell you, somebody asked me this morning, are you feeling old yet? Um, And the answer to that is yes, I am. Um, It's been very interesting, I got to tell you. I've sat in several meetings, as uh, Brother Paul Simpson can testify to. Uh, We have sat in several meetings together, and it's been strange to be the old man in the room. And that is the age that I have now hit. Now, some of you are looking at me going, Brother, what are you saying? You are clearly young. Well, let me go ahead and testify that when you are in a room with much younger men talking uh, things of God, talking things of the church, uh, you will be quickly uh, quick to realize just how young you are as they mention life and school and when they graduated and you look upon it and say, wow, when you guys were graduating high school, I was already wrapping up a master's degree and, and working my way ever closer to retirement. And so uh, I have now hit that age where I feel it is okay to say I'm one of the old guys. And so, uh, Brother Paul, I hope you would testify to that for me. Thank you, brother. God bless you. Um, so it, it was interesting to be in a meeting where you and I related better than we did with the younger men uh, that were in the room. And so uh, that's where we have hit. So anyway, thank you for that. Thank you for those greetings. And uh, again, thank you for the opportunity to celebrate my birthday today and to be with you all on this special day. Now, coming back to Titus chapter one, clearly we only covered uh, the introduction uh, today. And I think that's a good place for us to really park ourselves as we study through uh, Titus for this morning. You see, this is actually one of Paul's longest introductions. And what we find is Paul's longest, one of his longest introductions actually falls at the beginning of one of his shortest letters. In fact, we've already read this letter in its entirety. We see that it's only three chapters, uh, roughly 46 verses. But what we end up seeing with this letter is that it brings together the beauty of doctrine and deeds. It brings together the beauty of belief and behavior. It brings together conduct and creed. And so what we're going to see throughout this letter from the pastor is we're actually going to find two themes throughout the entirety of the letter to Titus. We're going to see that as believers in Christ, as a church under the name of Jesus Christ, we are called to be sound in our doctrine and zealous for good works. You see, as we begin to unpack Titus together, we're going to see that there is so much teaching that is happening in such a tiny little space that is found within this letter that ultimately many scholars argue that you end up getting more than you could have ever asked, imagined, or bargained for. And so what Paul ultimately gives us here in Titus, but then later as we'll see in First and Second Timothy, is he gives us a blueprint for church planning or a manual for building churches that will survive and thrive for the glory of God. So whether you are in a church that is five hours old or five days old, or whether you're in a church like ours that is well into our 50s with 50 plus years of rich history, what we're going to see in Titus is a model example of what the church is called to. And so as a church, I personally believe that we should come back to this particular letter time and time again in order to see how we are doing as a church. Now, for our text today, Paul begins by telling us about himself, about salvation, about preaching, and then about his son in the faith, 
who we know as Titus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through verse by verse, and there's going to be several phrases that are going to jump out at us, and we're just going to spend a few moments talking through these phrases together. So let's start together in verse 1. You see, in verse 1, we quickly see that for the sake of the faith, we are servants of God. Now, even though Paul was drawing to the, to the end of his life by the time he's writing to Titus, Paul still knew clearly who and what he was in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul identifies himself immediately as a servant of God. Now, the first thing I want you to note is this. Notice how Paul uses the phrase servant of God when normally when you read in his other letters, he refers to himself as a servant of Christ. You see, what Paul is doing here is he is now distinguishing that there is no difference between the two, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is the Son of God the Father, and yet he is pointing us to the Trinity and to the fact that they are, yes, distinct, but one in the same. But now notice that Paul's not done there. You see, he refers to himself as God's servant, now, we see this phrase come up again in 1 Peter chapter 1 when Peter speaks about how we as believers, Peter himself included, were bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. Coming back to Paul and speaking to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, Paul acknowledges to the church in Corinth that we are no longer our own. So when Paul acknowledges himself as a servant of God, he's not merely using the word bondservant here. Rather, he is saying of himself because of Christ that he is now a slave of God. In other words, what Paul does is he demonstrates the humility that should characterize our lives today as servants or as slaves of the Lord. Now, I know in our culture, slavery is a word that is condoned and condemned. In fact, many people don't even like speaking of slavery because of the harsh history our country has with that particular word and with what happened. However, when Paul is speaking of himself and he's using the word a slave of God, Paul wants us to see that as believers, when it comes to our faith in God, when it comes to walking with Jesus Christ, when it comes to faithfully serving the church, this is not about us. In other words, it is not enough for us to say or to post on social media that we are enough. In fact, what Paul would argue at this point is this. He is making the argument that that phrase, we are enough, is actually selfish. You see, we are not the cavalry as we often think of ourselves when we attend conferences or we stand at our capitals or we go on mission trips. We are not riding in in that particular moment to save the day. Rather, what Paul is doing is he's pointing us to the fact that at Calvary, because of Jesus Christ, we were paid for and therefore we belong to him. So if we're going to say anything about ourselves, if we're going to say anything about our lives, or if we're going to post anything about who we are, we should start with this phrase, we are not enough. 
In fact, we are wretched. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, he is enough. And we will faithfully serve him the days of our lives. Now, Paul here is clearly not done with his introduction. The very next thing that Paul does is he moves from being a servant of God to calling himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle technically references the original 12 who were eyewitnesses to the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Paul here is actually saying that he too is an apostle. So now we are seeing a second meaning to the word, which is a general term that applies to all of us because as believers in Christ, we are now his sent ones who go on behalf of Jesus Christ in order to spread the message of the good news of Christ. So you see, Paul in two simple phrases is speaking both to our calling, but also to the authority that we have as missionaries of our Lord and Savior. Now, for the remainder of the verse, Paul expresses the purpose for which it was he was called and which is also the purposes of us today that we share with Paul. You see, our call exists for the faith, according to Paul, which leads us to human responsibility. He then goes on to speak of God's elect, which points us to God's divine sovereignty. So what Paul is setting up here is we are beginning to see in these next phrases that salvation from beginning to end is the sovereign work of the grace of God. So all who repent and believe, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 13, will be saved. You see, Paul here is telling us that he believes God elected and predestined people to be saved. And at the same time, as we grow in godliness, as we mature in our faith, we as faithful believers now have the responsibility to live out the gospel message within our lives. Now, when speaking of this particular passage and this phrase, I love what um, Spurgeon says about this phrase. You said, he, he says this, God saves a man by grace, and if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. How do you reconcile these two doctrines? My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. You see, God's sovereignty, according to Spurgeon and following the words of Paul, God's sovereignty and human responsibility actually begin working together. And so for Paul, Paul now stands against anything that questions the sovereignty of God. He now stands against anything that would call into question the providential work of God. And at the same time, he stands against anything that would harm missions or evangelism for the sake of the faith and in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And so it's at this point we find the purpose of ministry. You see, ministry exists for the salvation of the lost among all the nations through the proclamation of the gospel according to the will of God. Now, Paul moves on from there, and he gives us phrases like the knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. Now, Paul here believed that the gospel should ultimately lead to uh, to godliness. In other words, what Paul is teaching us to say is this. He's teaching us that what I believe will affect how I live. And how I live will demonstrate what it is that I believe. Now, again, I love what Vance Havner says about this point. He says that in today's culture, we are challenged these days but not changed. We are convicted, but not converted. We hear, but do not, and thereby we deceive ourselves. You see, as a child of God, recognizing that in the midst of ourselves, we were found in a dead and wretched state. And yet, by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have been saved. And because of Jesus Christ, we have now been called to make him known. As believers in the faith, we have been called to live a holy and sanctified and pure life as servants of God or slaves of God. For the sake of the faith, we are now to mature in our beliefs and therefore grow in godliness. Paul moves on from there into verses two and three. And we see that for the sake of the faith, we are now secure. Now, Paul teaches us here that service to our Lord must be grounded in a security in knowing Jesus Christ, which ultimately sets us free to serve. Now, if you go back and look at verse two here, I would want you to notice the chain reaction that begins to take place. You see, we see that we have a saving faith of those who belong to God, which leads to the knowledge of truth, which then leads to godliness, which then rests in the hope of eternal life in our God who cannot lie. You see, here in verse 2 is our great assurance. Because of hope, Because of the certainty and expectation that can come from knowing our Lord in eternal life, we have now been given the hope. We have now been given the promise of eternal life that, according to the text, was promised to us before the ages began. And then we see Paul teach us that this simple truth of hope in eternal life that was promised before time, it is founded upon the character and integrity of God who, according to Paul, never lies. Now, why is that phrase so important for Paul here? Well, you see, when you talk about God, a God who never lies, clearly as believers, we know that. 
But at this point for Titus, he probably needed to hear this encouragement. He needed to be edified with this word. Because you see, when you begin to do a comparison with God, you have to compare him to someone like Satan, who according to John chapter 8, is the father of lies. Later we're going to see in verse 12 where God is going to be compared to the Cretans who are always liars. So clearly, as believers, we can have security in knowing the one that we call upon has us in his hands. And because of God, we have hope. We have security. And then here's the beauty of the phrase again. Based on verse 2, we can now see and understand that salvation was not some sort of afterthought to God. God didn't all of a sudden look at the world he created after Genesis 3 and all of a sudden decide, well, Adam and Eve sinned, so now I have to provide a savior. You see, this was God's plan from the beginning. In fact, it was planned, it was planned down to the very last detail from the very beginning. And so our security and our confidence rests in the witness of Jesus Christ as described here by Paul. We then get into verse 3, and we then see the second part of this chain reaction that Paul has created. We can now add the following. We see that the eternal promise of eternal life from God stepped into history as the word of God made known through preaching. You see, God has placed his eternal plan of salvation in the hands of people like you and in the hands of people like me. Now, Paul is speaking specifically here to Titus. So he is speaking and referencing the pastor here. However, as recipients of the gospel, we are all now called to be heralds of the gospel. Because you see, this gospel is not our gospel. Rather, it is his gospel. And so as pastors who stand in the pulpit men who stand in the pulpit proclaiming the truth of the word of God. If we are going to preach anything, we need to be preaching the word of God. As faithful believers who attend church, we should look forward to singing the word. We should look forward to the spoken word. We should look forward to the preaching of the word. And if anything else is preached from the pulpit, then we as believers should question what it is that we are hearing. Yet at the same same time, as believers in Jesus Christ, all of us are called to teach his word. We have a responsibility, going back to Matthew chapter 28, where we have been called to make disciples and to teach his word faithfully. Now, as you're doing that, whether confident in the spoken word or whether uncomfortable in speaking capital T truth, remember this phrase. There are some who may teach the gospel better, but no one will teach a better gospel. You see, for the sake of the faith, we can now say as believers... We are secure 
in our faith because of the witness of Jesus Christ in accordance to God's holy word. We move from there into verse 4. We see that for the sake of the faith, we are now separated. Or better yet, we are now set apart. It's at this point that Paul now introduces us to the recipient of this letter. We see a man named Titus. Now, Titus is actually mentioned uh, 13 times in the New Testament. We know that Titus was Greek. We know that he was a non-Jewish convert, and he actually became a test case for the fact that you can come to faith and you do not need to become a Jew. And so Titus, as he walked in the faith, as he even went on missionary journeys with Paul, Titus ended up developing a special relationship with the troubled church of Corinth and therefore spent a season of his ministry working at the church in Corinth. And so now Titus has been commissioned to go and serve uh, at the church that's found on the island of Crete, which ultimately reveals Paul's confidence in Titus's ability to lead and minister during difficult times and difficult circumstances. And so here we find Paul providing a word of encouragement in verse 4 concerning both our security in Christ and the blessing that comes when we draw his strength for service. You see, Paul gives us this beautiful phrase. In verse 4, he says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Now this would be the same expression, the true son that Paul would use in describing Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. You see, Paul acknowledged that he was their spiritual father. He led both of them to faith and understanding of who Christ was and is, and then ultimately led them to a maturing faith and a growing in godliness as they traveled with Paul and did life with Paul. You see, we need to think about this as older members. Now, again, I got to say, I've quickly learned, thanks to our younger folks, that I am now an old guy. It was common for me to hear that amongst my children. My children have been calling me old since day one. But now I'm hearing that from the 20-somethings. I am the old guy. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I've quickly learned, as many of us know, there's nothing in this world that ibuprofen cannot fix. And so if you're like me, you probably pop ibuprofen or Tylenol like it's Skittles at this point in your life. I am there and I am with you. At the same time, I've learned this. As a believer who's, who's I guess, transitioning, if you will, into the next phase of life, into the older phase of life, as I look to Paul's words here in verse 4 in speaking to Titus, I have to ask myself, as older, mature members, who are we discipling? Who are we growing in the faith? You see, as older members of the church, it is our responsibility to shepherd the next generation. It is our responsibility to grow them in faith. 
It is our responsibility to do life with them so that they can learn from our successes and yet at the same time, they can see the grace that is found in our failures. Now, when I speak of older members, I'm not talking of the gray hairs in the room. I'm speaking to all of us, whether you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or so on. Each generation has a responsibility, according to Paul, to pass on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the generation to follow. You see, I got to say personally, I know this season has been difficult for us, but the one thing that I've enjoyed the most is gathering with you all and seeing our children in service. It has been a joy and a blessing to see our kids here. I've been thankful for that. I've been thankful to see a toy roll down the aisle or a ball roll up underneath the aisle. Asher, thank you for that, brother. But what I've enjoyed most is watching our parents and our adults lovingly point our children to God. I've loved seeing older generations point the next generation and what it looks like to grow in godliness. So you see, the reality is we all share a common faith. Now again, Paul points us and references this common faith. And so by doing so, both Timothy and Titus, they both experienced the same biblical truth. They both experienced the same Jesus Christ that Paul received himself. And so Titus here is going to be preaching the same message that Paul himself preached, which should be the same message that we are preaching and teaching today. You see, we all share in the common faith. We have all been entrusted to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ faithfully and to use the gospel to help others grow in godliness. Now here's the reality. Methods may change, but the message will always remain the same. Paul will actually speak of this later in verse 9 when he begins speaking upon sound doctrine. And what he'll ultimately teach us, and we're going to unpack in a week, is that sound doctrine is actually necessary to build a vibrant, dynamic, and genuine New Testament church rooted and grounded in common faith. In other words, it can't be about what we believe or what we have experienced. Rather, what we do as believers and say as believers and as the local church needs to be rooted in sound doctrine. And so as believers, we need to be grounded in solid biblical truth. Paul then brings his greeting to an end by bringing us back to focus on this beautiful metaphor of God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, what Paul is doing in this moment is he's bringing Titus back. He's bringing Titus back to the fact that we are all saved by God's grace. Not anything that we have done, 
not by any standard or measure that we have created. Rather, we are saved in grace by Jesus Christ. He then brings us back to the fact that we are all family within the family of God. You see, when we receive God the Father, we also received Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, as a part of the family of God, you can actually flip that phrase. When we received Jesus Christ as Savior, as a part of the family of God, we have now received God as the Father. Now, this phrase is actually, the phrase of God the Father and Jesus the Savior is actually mentioned over 12 times in the New Testament. We see Jesus being Savior. The word Savior mentioned six times in Titus. Clearly, Jesus being the Savior was an issue at the church on the island of Crete. Three times it's applied to God, and the other three times it's going to be applied to Jesus Christ. And so what we see here, according to Paul, is we see the equality of the essence as God, and yet their distinction in person is both plainly and clearly revealed. And yet, through it all, in seeing God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, we come back to the fact that we are all a part of the same family of God. We are loved by both the Father, who is our Father, and at the same time, we are loved by the Savior, who is our Savior. Paul then closes with the Christian blessings of grace and peace. Grace, which is unmerited favor, which gets us into the family. Peace, which is an unsurpassing wholeness, which we enjoy once we are in the family. Now, all of this and more is ours because we share a common faith as a part of the one family of God. And Paul covers all of this in the first four verses of his introduction to the letter of Titus. You see, we've learned that grace inspires godliness. We've learned that salvation inspires service. Those of us who understand God's love for us and his desire for salvation from the beginning will then be compelled to love him and to serve him. So when we see what Jesus Christ has done for us, then we will desire to do and to serve and to speak of him. Not out of obligation, but out of pure gospel gratitude because of what Jesus has done for us we will be willing and faithfully ready to serve him you see a person who is captured by the love of Jesus will then love him in return not again because they have to but rather because they want to and so Paul introduces his letter by helping us to see that we have been saved in order that we might serve him and in order that we might enjoy him. You see, for the sake of the faith, we are all called to be set apart as the one family of God. So as we continue this journey into doctrine, 
according to Paul's words in Titus, may we also learn to grow more devoted to him. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to to be here, to be in this place, to serve you, to worship you. Father, we praise you that just in a mere introduction, in a couple sentences and four verses, Father, we can see your truth. Father, we can already see the calling that you've placed upon each one of our lives. Father, help us to realize that for the sake of the faith, Father, we have been separated and set apart for you. Father, for the sake of the faith, help us to realize that we are secure in our assurance of knowing you. Father, I pray that for the sake of the faith, that God, we would realize that you have called us to desire sound doctrine. You have called us to be zealous in our works. You have called us to be slaves for you. Father, none of this was done by our own doing. None of us could ever run fast enough or jump high enough or be smart enough or or talk more eloquently. Rather, Father, it was done by your providential plan because of your sovereign hand. So God, for the fact that we are even in this place, that we are even in this room as believers in Jesus Christ, we praise you for how you have revealed yourself to us. And God, I pray now for each of us that for the sake of the faith, Lord, may we move about our days bringing glory and honor to your name. Lord, again, we say we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that you loved us first. Thank you for delighting in us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.